Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Calibre. Today, we're focusing on the UK equity income sector, notably the small and medium end of the market, covering a variety of topics from M&A activity to dividends and net zero targets. Today, I'm joined by Guido Desi Lombardo, the Elite Rated Manager of Montanaro UK Income. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Guido, your fund invests obviously predominantly in small and mid-cap companies. I mean, it's been quite a hard time for those companies recently. I mean, we've seen a revenge of the, the, the mega caps as the FTSE 100 has sort of outperformed the, the small and mid-cap space. So, I mean, where do we sit today? I mean, are these companies still out of favor? Are, are, yeah, has, uh, has sentiment got so negative that now we can, you know, we can look forward perhaps a bit more favorably? Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Small, small and mid cap companies, uh, particularly actually in the UK, have ha- have really been out of favour against uh, their large cap peers for for some time now. I think if you look at the the eighteen month period to the end of April uh, twenty twenty three, um, the NUMA small cap index underperformed the NUMA large cap index by by a full twenty six percent. You've got to go back. All the way to 1998. That's that's 25 years ago uh, to see a similar level of of relative underperformance of small caps. So it really has been a kind of once in a generation type type period we've lived through. Um, why why has this happened? Well, obviously small caps uh, are, are longer duration assets. They tend to be growing faster than large caps. So when infl- inflation spikes up, when interest rates spike up. Um, you get a valuation-led sell-off of, of these longer-duration assets, so that's why small caps underperformed. And also, you know, clearly um, with, with the war in Ukraine, you know, oil price going up that helped the oil and gas companies, and similarly, interest rates going up have helped the banks. Uh, and you get more oil and gas and banks companies in the large cap than in small caps. So I think we've had a macro period that has certainly favoured large cap uh, in the last eighteen months or so. Long, long term, that the small cap effect. Which is where basically smaller companies in pretty much every country around the world have outperformed large cap. That that small cap effect uh, remains in place in the UK. If you go back to 1954, since then small caps have outperformed large caps by 3.1 percent per annum. Um, so if you compound that over time, actually going back to 1954, small caps have given a return almost seven times greater than large caps. So we think that. Uh, despite this sort of recent period that we've had, we think small cap continues to be uh, a good place for the long-term investor. Uh, and actually, our, our CEO has recently written a blog, for those of you who may be interested, uh, on, on this particular topic. Uh, it's, it, I, think, I think the link will be in the program notes of the podcast. So uh, there's a bit more detail there on this point. So as to whether right now they're, they're still out of favor, obviously, it, it's a little bit tricky uh, you know, without a crystal ball, as as, as it were. But but given the extreme nature of the underperformance we've had recently, um, it could be that we're we're set for for, for an interesting time uh, for for investors to look at uh, the asset class. And why do you not invest in larger companies or or aimlessed companies? Uh, yes. So um, in terms of uh, briefly, first to to explain what we do invest in, and then, then I'll say what we don't invest in. So uh, we invest in uh, smaller mid cap companies in the UK. Um, it's roughly 50, 50% small, 50% mid. So small cap we define as from 100 million to 1.5 billion. That's roughly where the numerous small cap index cuts off. And then mid cap from 1.5 billion up to 10 billion. Um, 
Now, that gives us a huge choice. There's about 550 companies in that range. And even if you exclude AIM, which I'll touch on in a second, um, and put on a dividend yield threshold of 3%, there's, there's still over 200 companies to pick from. So we've got plenty of choice uh, as active managers. Uh, so what's the reason that we don't invest in large cap? Well, to be honest, we're, we're just not convinced we can add value there. Uh, firstly, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of oil and gas, a lot of banks in large cap land. Uh, you know, the, an important part of the, the value driver for those companies is what the oil price is doing, what the interest rates are doing. Uh, and frankly, we're, we're not macro specialists. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the macro. We're not sure we can add much value there. Uh, and secondly, if you think about the amount of sell-side coverage that there is, so if you look at Shell or, or HSBC, these companies have between 25 and 30 sell-side analysts writing coverage on them. So in our view, again, it's quite hard to add value. Uh, our companies tend to have a low single-digit number of sell-side analysts covering them. Maybe one or two of those might be housebrokers. Uh, and we have a very large team of uh, analysts and portfolio managers here, about 16 of us in total, really kicking the tires on these small and medium-sized companies. Uh, and because of that lack of focus from the sell side, we, we think that gives rise to some pricing inefficiencies that, that we can take advantage of. So that's why we like fishing in our small and mid-cap space. Uh, on the other side, why don't we invest in A-list companies? Uh, very, um, very quick answer, really. I mean, it just comes down to liquidity. Um, we, we've been known to say in the past that the AIM is, is almost like a lobster pot market. You can get in, but you can't get out. Um, and we, we've just taken the view that given the lack of liquidity in AIM, we don't think it's an appropriate uh, uh, place for, for an open-ended strategy like ours to be investing in. And what are your thoughts on, on takeovers at the moment? I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of talk about private equity money out there. We've seen this big underperformance in the small and mid-cap space with some of your companies potentially looking vulnerable. I mean, are, are, have any of your portfolios received, companies received their takeover offers and are you expecting more in the future? Yeah, so, so in, short, uh, in short, yes. Um, you know, as you, as you rightly said, uh, as we touched on earlier, UK small cap has had a very uh, tough, you know, call it 18, 24-month period, certainly relative to the large cap. It's trading towards the bottom of its historic uh, PE range, um, and and of course the pound. I know it's had a bit of a bounce recently, but but it's still relatively cheap compared to history. Uh, and as you rightly said, you know private equity sitting on a lot of dry powder, very well publicised. So so I think all the ingredients are there to to make this kind of or the UK specifically an attractive market for for, for bidders looking looking to buy companies. Um, in terms of our fund. You know, we, we invest in, in high-quality companies, cash-generative companies, uh, companies with strong balance sheets. Actually, 40% of the companies in the portfolio have got net cash. Uh, and so you know, we think that those kinds of companies can be very attractive for a private equity company uh, or a house to come in, lever up the balance sheet, service the debt using those strong cash flows, uh, and make a decent return. So last year, we had two takeovers in the fund. We had Bruin Dolphin and Biffa got taken out. And this year so far, uh, Decra, uh, um, uh, the the vet uh, pharmaceutical company, ha has announced that they're in discussions with EQT about a possible takeover. Now that that hasn't been formalised yet, uh, and with M and A in general, it's always kind of tricky to predict exactly what's going to happen and when. But 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 you know, given the ingredients, the setup that we have, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we do see more approaches this year. And your fund is a, an income fund, of course. So uh, how are the dividends actually holding up. I mean, of course, capital values might have come down a bit, but are the dividends 
still there? Are you expecting dividend group growth in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, so dividends are holding up uh, well. If if you look uh, to last year to, to 2022, um, and, and you you think about it between the ordinary dividends and the special dividends, uh, the ordinary dividends which were distributed by the fund, they actually grew by 22%. So despite what was happening with the share prices, the ordinary dividends grew 22%. Now, the specials did go backwards a bit, and that's because in 2021, uh, there were a lot of special dividends which were making up for the skipped dividends in 2020, which was the COVID year. Um, So, you know, ordinary is up nicely, specials down a bit. Overall, the distribution last year was broadly flat. Um, And and this year, you know, I, I, I do a sort of forecast at the start of a detailed bottom-up forecast at the start of January and at the start of July. Uh, and I came into the year, you know, obviously with everything that was going on with the macro context, I took a slightly cautious approach. I thought that ordinaries would be broadly flat this year. Um, but as it happened, actually, um, so far this year, the dividends have been coming in a little bit better than I was expected. So we've had some very nice ordinary dividends from Games Workshop, which is one of our larger holdings. Um, Four Imprint has announced a special dividend, uh, which was very large. And we've also just generally across the board, dividends have just been a bit better than I was expecting. So the fund today is yielding uh, about 3.8% or so. Um, and I think it's also important to remember the growth. Um, so the, the, the fund has, has grown its, its dividend at a compound annual growth rate since 2014 uh, of almost 6%. And that actually compares to, to 0%, actually margin negative for, for, for the FTSE all share. So if you combine that, Yield of three point eight percent with some growth. Uh, that that's what we're trying to achieve. Brilliant. Uh, and the fund is uh, is known to be pretty ESG friendly. I mean, you exclude certain companies from the portfolio, um, uh, and the company are looking to be net zero by twenty thirty. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so ESG, you're right. It is a quite an ESG friendly fund, and and actually many of our clients use um, the fund in their ethical portfolios for for, for their clients. Um, so we have some ethical exclusions, so areas that we will not invest in. So those include um, no oil and gas uh, production, uh, no tobacco, no alcohol, no controversial weapons, no gambling, uh, no high interest rate lending, and a, and a few other areas. So we have those exclusions. Um, and then from an ESG perspective, we also uh, spend a lot of time actually engaging with our companies, again, with that big team of analysts I talked about. Uh, and one real focus uh, over the last, call it, 18 months, two years, has been on encouraging our companies to put in place net zero targets, uh, but not just any old net zero targets, having these targets actually verified by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBTI, to give some real credence uh, to, to, to those targets and the pathway to achieve them. Um, and, and actually, pleasingly, about two-thirds of the companies in the portfolio have now put in place these Net zero targets verified by the SBTI, um, which you know, if you go back even just a couple of years, we think is almost an unthinkable number. So we're pleased with the, the progress there. Mo- moving to uh, the company itself, Montanaro Asset Management, and our ambitions as a company. Well, firstly, we're we're a B corporation. We renewed that status for a further three years with a, with a higher score uh, uh, recently. Uh, and can you tell our listeners what a B corporation is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a B Corporation is essentially a company that has, has gone through a process and been verified to, to be at the highest standards of, of, of ESG, uh, you know, environmental, social and governance 
but but throughout the whole organization. So we've even have had to change our articles of association, for example, to make sure that we comply with the rigorous standards uh, to, to be a B corporation. Some, some of the uh, you know most forward-looking uh, brands and, and ethical brands in, in the UK and around the world are B corporations, including, for example, Patagonia. Uh, but we were one of the first asset managers to, to become a B corporation. So, so in terms of our um, uh, uh, ambitions as a company, aside from being a B corporation, uh, we also in March this year announced that uh, we we want to be actually carbon negative by 2030. What does that mean? Basically, we want to remove 100% of all of our historical emissions since the company was founded in 1991. Now, obviously, uh, data records and everything back then might be a bit difficult to know exactly what carbon was emitted. But we're going to be, you know, to, to, to counteract that, we're going to make sure that we sort of overachieve and make sure that we really have got rid of all of that. So we've partnered with a Danish carbon removal platform called Climate. That's with a K. Um, and essentially, we're going to be you know, partnering with them and funding some carbon sequestration sequestration projects to, to take carbon out of the atmosphere, really. Uh, so, so we think this is an ambitious target, but hopefully one that we can achieve and, and hopefully one that, that will also inspire others to follow suit. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about a couple of your holdings? Um, I mean, I see Games Workshop, I think, is, is your largest holding. Uh, what do you see as the outlook for, for some of the, these companies? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Games Workshop. Um, hopefully, some of your listeners will be will be familiar with it. It's it's the largest hobby miniatures company in the world. Uh, they're a very focused business. They're um, you know they've got a strong brands uh, with Warhammer, um, and they've got a very diversified and importantly a, a loyal uh, customer base, which gives them some element of of repeating uh, revenue, if you will. Um, they've got a good manufacturing base, well invested. Uh, and they use that to produce the figurines, which they then sell unpainted. Uh, but then they also sell their proprietary paint alongside it, uh, which is very high margins. So that's quite a nice little business model there. Um, but their key asset, really, what, what's, what's Games Workshop's key asset? It, it's their very rich uh, intellectual property, their IP. They have created uh, fantasy worlds, fantasy storylines, fantasy characters. Um, and the great thing about this is because they're fantasy, uh, that gives them an unlimited pipeline of coming up with new characters, new storylines, uh, and essentially an unlimited pipeline of new products. So over time, we think that's going to continue to drive growth. They're launching their 10th edition of, of Warhammer this summer, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and also, in terms of adoption around the world, this is a global business, uh, but the US is is certainly underpenetrated. They're barely scratching the surface there. So we think that could be a very big driver of growth in the coming years. Um, and the last uh, leg to talk about, really, is um, because of this key asset I talked about, their IP, they can actually license that out uh, and in return receive a royalty fee. Uh, and royalty fees uh, basically drop straight through to profit. So they're, they're very, uh, you know, obviously high margin and transformational for the economics of a business. So historically, they've been licensing their IP to video game manufacturers who've been making Warhammer games, for example. Um, but there was an exciting piece of news towards the end of last year when they announced that they're in discussions with Amazon about Amazon potentially creating a TV series and maybe a film uh, based on Warhammer and then also merchandising. So clearly, if that, you know, that, that hasn't been signed yet, but if it does get signed and if it takes off, that could be a very material royalty fee for, for Games Workshop. And also, you'd have thought that that would have a virtuous cycle effect of 
of kind of um, encouraging uh, existing players, but also new players to play the core game as well. So overall, this is a business with with net cash on the balance sheet, strong return on capital, and it's delivered a a five year historic earnings growth average uh, growth came a com- compound average growth of thirty three percent. Very impressive growth, mm-hmm. and the dividend has followed that. So we think it's a high quality, structurally growing company. Sounds very exciting. Well, look, that's been a really good update. Uh, that's been really interesting. No worries at all. Thank you for having me on. The Montanaro UK Income Fund stands out from typical UK equity income funds as it specifically targets small and medium-sized businesses. As we heard in this episode, Montanaro has an extensive team of experts giving the manager the potential to uncover opportunities that are frequently overlooked by others. For more information on the LF Montanaro UK Income Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 